Nexus PMG welcomes you to the Bigger Than Us podcast, which we as energy geeks lovingly refer to as the BTU. Bigger Than Us is a podcast that focuses on ideas that will shape the future of our planet and ultimately our existence. We will occasionally lean into energy topics because after all, it's the key to our collective survival, but we'll also explore other ideas and topics that we believe will have an impact that is bigger than us. And now, on to today's show. Hello and welcome to the Bigger Than Us podcast. I'm your host, Raj Daniels, and today I'd like to welcome Diana Cohen to the show. Diana Cohen is the co-founder and CEO of Plastic Pollution Coalition and a passionate advocate against plastic pollution. A Los Angeles-based visual artist, Diana has shown her work internationally at galleries, foundations, and museums. She uses plastic in her artwork to make a visual and social impact. With plastic bags as her primary material for the past 27 years, Cohen is interested in exploring its materiality through modifications and the material's relationship to culture, media, toxicity, and the world at large, and shared this in her 2010 TED Talk, Tough Truths About Plastic Pollution. Diana is a frequent speaker and media expert and has spoken at the UN and international conferences and symposia, and has been interviewed by Al Jazeera, NBC Nightly News, The New York Times, The Washington Post, The Guardian, USA Today, Martha Stewart Living, and many others. She is the recipient of the Global Green Environment Award, the Snow Angel Award, and the Environmentalist of the Year Award by SEMA, amongst others. Diana, how are you doing today? I'm well. How are you, Raj? Diana, I'm doing wonderful. Diana, where in the world are you located? I am in Los Angeles, California. And how's the weather in Los Angeles today? Today has a feeling of June gloom. <laughs> what is June gloom? June gloom is when it's warm, uh, a slightly humid, and there's a layer of clouds so that it's not sunny. Oh, sounds it's unfortunate. It's rare here in Southern California, but it does tend to happen during the month of June. Oh, well... I hope it brightens up for you a little bit. Thank you. So, Diana, I like to open my show by asking my guests the following question. If you were asked to share something interesting about yourself, what would it be? Well, you know, ever since I was a little kid, I have, when people have asked me what I am, I've always told them that I was an artist. And I don't know if people will find it interesting or not, but... For that reason, I've always drawn and made art. And uh, when I was in university, I was a biology major. But after two years, I realized I couldn't be creative unless I had a PhD. Actually, I realized that after my first year. And so I began proceedings to transfer to the art department. <laughs> and so I have a degree in art. And I make art. And am an artist. So what about art drew you to it from such a young age? Uh, you know, I think making art is something that you can do anywhere. You don't have to have a lot of materials to create something or imagine something and then make it. And particularly when it comes to something like drawing, if you have access to anything that will make a mark um, on 
something else, you have the ability to draw. Uh, it doesn't necessarily give you the ability, but you have the opportunity to draw. And um, I'm just really, I'm fascinated by that. And it's something that I think my parents used when I was a kid growing up to entertain me and keep me occupied. Uh, was easy for them to to hand me a pen or a pencil and a napkin or a piece of paper and say, why don't you draw? And that's where I come from, just in case anyone was wondering. Well, I love that idea. And I feel like we all have artists somewhere inside us and some of us are more willing to express it than others. You know, maybe too early in the show, but I'm going to ask anyway, if you were to encourage adults to mind their inner artists, what would you say to them? Well, I would say that I believe that everybody's creative and being able to draw or trying to draw something will teach you a lot about yourself. Um, and I think people are too hard on themselves. And I, I've so often heard people say, oh, I can't draw or I'm not an artist. But I've found that when I have taken time and spent time sitting with friends or um, adults or children, um, that everyone draws differently, everyone sees things differently, we all see and experience colors differently. And, you know, I think it's a really beautiful, thoughtful, and meditative thing to do if you have um, the time to be able to do that. Thank you so much for sharing that. Now, switching gears a little bit, can you share something about your current organization? Sure. I mean, well, there's a relationship between my art and our current organization. So um, our current organization, well, the only organization that I've ever created at this level, um, co-created, is Plastic Pollution Coalition. And uh, just for background, it's some of it stems from, and my interest in the issue of plastic, plastic as a material and plastic pollution and the impact of plastic um, on our planet and on our health has grown very organically and evolved from my making artwork out of plastic and plastic bags. Again, that came from a feeling of wanting to do something creative and make something and not having really very many materials at my disposal at that moment in time. I happened to be somewhere where I, I had a little sewing kit <laughs> tucked in my bathroom bag and I had a couple bags and I, I, I can't remember if I was at a hotel or a motel. There was a bag hanging in the closet that was like a shoe shine bag and said shoe shine or something like that on it. And um, I took that bag and a bright pink bag that I had and I cut them up with a little scissor and I threaded the needle and I sewed bits and pieces together to make a piece that was called shine. And um, I got really excited about that. I was happy about it and feeling that I was using a material that people think of as trash. And in a sense, it's almost Plastic and plastic bags in particular have become a material that are almost invisible in our cultures because we, we don't really value them. And, um, and in a sense, those materials were free and I had access to them. 
And so in cutting them up and putting them back together and reworking them, I felt that I was trying to, I was not an activist at the time I started making this work. It was more than 25 years ago. Um, but I did feel like I was giving this material another life and um, utilizing it in a different way. And um, I don't know, I had a lot of thoughts about it, but, but you know, it's been a, it's been a long process. So um, now that I've been working with plastic bags and plastic bottle caps and different plastic, what, what, when, when we started working on this, everyone called it debris or waste or rubbish or litter or garbage and taking these materials, not super sullied versions of them, but just something that might have been used once, you know, um, that uh, I was calling attention to the material and that led me to begin to look at it differently and then see it around me um, here in California or uh, begin to see it also at the beach, in the ocean, um, tying it to my bathing suit when I come out of the water, looking for a garbage bin to put it in, not, not thinking that it was a material that could be recycled, not knowing much about it. I really didn't give it any thought. And that led to, in I would say in about 2007, 2008, I started hearing what felt like a lone voice at the time of Captain Charles Moore, who's the founder of Algolita uh, Marine Research. Um, and I started hearing Charlie out there kind of yelling and saying, hey, we've got a really big problem with plastic in the ocean. There's Basically, he was saying, there's a mass of plastic forming in the ocean. I'm seeing it when I'm traveling through it uh, on, on a boat between Hawaii and the United States. And we have a horrible problem. And by the time I began to hear his voice and tune into that, I, I called him. I contacted him. And I said, what is this? What are you talking about? Because I imagined, you know, an island of plastic garbage that you could somehow travel to. So I started getting more engaged in thinking about it, but really thinking about it as an artist and a person who was now making not just small pieces or two-dimensional pieces, but three-dimensional pieces out of my work and sculptural pieces and installations and having uh, success and getting attention for those pieces and beginning to have the opportunity to show them in galleries and foundations and museums, uh, not just in the United States, but in other countries as well. And I started just putting all the pieces together. And my original response and idea was to create a large scale art piece, travel out to the Great Pacific Garbage Patch in the Pacific Ocean, which is the Northeastern Pacific Gyre. I thought it was uh, a destination that I could travel to and then bring equipment with me that would allow me to uh, harvest it, like pick it up like a crane and I was talking to these brothers in Utah who had this chipper that could take up to 50% organic matter because every time I spoke to Charlie, he would say, you can't clean it up. You can't clean it up to me. And I kept saying, don't tell people you can't clean it up. Some kid is going to come along and figure out how to clean it up. Don't dissuade everybody. And he was like, okay, but you can't clean it up. <laughs> and he kept saying that to me. And I felt really challenged by it. Um, but my idea was to go out and raise awareness, to figure out how to harvest this stuff or pick it up, to chip it, 
he said it was going to have a lot of organic matter and life growing on it, you know, almost like it, it almost becomes like an artificial reef system. And I know that scientists have been finding reef fish and uh, life that normally lives on reefs, but out floating in the ocean because plastic also creates this kind of vector with that, that, you know, creatures can travel on. And um, anyway, so it's very complicated you know, from, from that, that scientific perspective, but, you know, and, and dangerous in a strange way. Um, and so I wanted to chip it up and, and then cold mold it into bricks. And that was my idea and that we'd be able to build things out of the bricks. And I really thought it was very clear and very easy so I, I put a lot of energy for about a year into developing a business plan to do it. And I thought I could go out there with friends who were also seeing the problem. Most of my friends that were seeing the problem in the beginning or my beginning of understanding it were a lot of them were surfers and professional surfers. And they started texting me pictures from different parts of the world. Suddenly I'd get a picture from the pro surfer Kelly Slater, the world champion surfer and of a beach totally inundated with plastic garbage. And I'd say, oh my God, where are you? And he'd say, I'm in Costa Rica or I'm in Nicaragua. You know, and so people started sharing these images. And that's when I started to realize that I didn't think we could actually clean it up. And um, uh, I, I met some other folks and we co-created and decided to co-found together Plastic Pollution Coalition. And that was back in 2009. And in the process of doing that, I put together an advisory board. And actually, one of the people on my board looked at me when we were having a deeper conversation about this and said, you know, I think we need to back up and look at the big picture. And what is that big picture? Because it's because I was saying to him, it's not about cleanup. It's really not about, we're not going to fix this problem by cleaning something up. And um, I feel like industry and the petrochemical industry and all the big corporate companies that use plastic uh, to package their food and beverages and beauty products and materials in, they have put a lot of time and energy and lobbying power and money and advertising money into selling us the idea that everything can just be recycled. And what that's done is it's externalized all the true costs. So, it, and it pushed the responsibility and the onus onto the public. And that is why, you know, Keep America Beautiful and these different Keep Blank Beautiful campaigns, Tidy Britain, Be a Tidy Kiwi in New Zealand, etc., have developed these campaigns that are all about give a hoot, don't pollute, don't be a litter bug, and teaching this, you know, three R's to our children, all these campaigns, and then suddenly our children are supposed to clean this all up, which I find, you know, repulsive. <laughs> like, to me, that's repulsive, the idea that this is the legacy that we're leaving to our children and their children and future generations is like, you've got to go clean up all this garbage because these big companies and corporations are not going to stop the way that they package things and do business. And of course, they're not responsible for any of their packaging. Like, that's actually insane. So let's talk about a few things you said there. Number one, the idea of 
you know, it being an invisible problem. I have visited your website quite a few times and I highly recommend the audience to do so. That first picture that you have there, you know, we touched on it briefly before we started recording. I find it haunting. And the idea of it being invisible, you know, I look at that picture and I think about, so I've had the good fortune of visiting East Africa, Kenya, India, especially especially, uh, Bombay, Mumbai now, and walking on the beach over there. And, you know, there's this thing about you see it, but you don't see it. Do you understand what I'm saying? Yes. And this this picture you have, can you can you share like where you took it and what was going on there at the moment? Yeah. Um, so the 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 short film, the short video that's right on the homepage of our website of plasticpollutioncoalition.org um, is footage that I shot standing on a beach in a place called Freedom Island which is in the middle of Manila in the Philippines. And um, it's the backside of it. It's a nature preserve with a mangrove forest on the backside. And the mangrove forest has a lot of plastic entangled around the, all the roots of the mangroves. And then on the beach there, there were dozens of organizations and nonprofits that are based um, that or are based or have um, offices in the Philippines, and they together were not just involved in a multi-year cleanup, but they were involved in a cleanup where they were documenting and um, listing what, what we call a brand audit. So they were documenting any identifi- uh, identifiable names or logos on any of the plastic and packaging that was being found. Uh, to identify which companies were using those that packaging or producing that packaging for their products. And at the time I was there, they were really just in the middle of the cleanup. Uh, and I say in the middle of it, but it's a Sisyphusian task. I mean, that's a cleanup that will never be completed because of the way that packaging is produced and because there is very little to no infrastructure to support taking those materials back. Uh, but we have the same problem in the United States. It's not a unique problem to um, to the Philippines or to Southeast Asia. It's just, uh, I feel like in the United States, some of it is a little more out of sight, out of mind, but not true. Depend, it depends which neighborhoods and which areas you live in, of course. Um, so I was standing on that beach filming it, and just to my left, there were a couple fishermen in the water. And the water was full of plastic and the plastic was washing up with every little lapping wave. And there were some kids further down the beach swimming in the water. Um, five river tributaries empty out into that bay in Manila Bay there. So they're all bringing plastic um, packaging down the rivers uh, and into that bay. And what was interesting about where they were with the brand audit is I asked what they were seeing data-wise. And at the time, they said that the two largest polluters that were identified there uh, were Nestle's and Unilever. And I think that is because, uh, in particular, in Southeast Asia, but also in Africa and India and in other countries and in the United States, they produce a lot of the single-use sachet packets, which are these kind of amalgams that are they come in these rolls 
and they allow people to buy a very small amount of something rather than a bigger bigger bottle or container. Um, and you know, I haven't done like a cost analysis of it, but I would imagine that it ends up being more expensive to buy shampoo or dishwashing liquid or you know um, laundry detergent in these small containers, but it's probably much more expensive than buying it in a large container. So uh, those are made out of a, a combination of paper, plastic, foil, um, and they're quite difficult to, to do anything with that packaging afterwards. I mean, I, I feel like they are uh, highly, if they're, it's highly ir irresponsible to produce packaging like that. Uh, at, although it seems to have gained a big market, particularly for people who don't have a lot of money and can only buy a small portion of something at a time. Yes, I, I've seen some of that too, where people will perhaps buy for the day or due to lack of storage, they have to you know, keep a very small amount of product on hand. You, know, you mentioned externalities, some of the negative externalities, and I did some research and watched some of your presentations. Can you share a little bit about how much plastic we're actually consuming nowadays in our food supply? Well, I mean, there was a, a study that came out that made an equivalent that saying that right now we humans are ingesting approximately a credit card's worth of plastic a week. What are some of the biggest offenders from a food perspective? Well, I mean, I don't think it's, I, I'm not going to call out any particular company, but I would say that you know, in general, anybody who's packaging their food in plastic is an offender. So, but, but in particular, it's a real challenge with containers that are um, even these kind of Tetra Pak containers uh, or even canned foods. You know, people think that they're doing something better by buying a canned food or a Tetra Pak, like a kind of cardboard carton container. But many of those have a plastic lining. Most of those plastic linings are made with bisphenol A, BPA, or a BPA substitute. And BPA, bisphenols, and BPA substitutes have been identified as endocrine disruptors, which means that they function like synthetic estrogen and they turn things on and off in our body. And micro amounts of them leach into food and beverages and beauty products and materials that are packaged inside of them. Uh, and phthalates are also used to make plastics. They make plastics kind of soft and supple and malleable. Um, they're used heavily in things for babies and children, soft, mushy toys and things like that, with a lot of which end up in children's mouths. And um, those have also been identified as endocrine disruptors. In fact, the University of Irvine has identified phthalates as being obesogens. So they've also found in studies that exposure to phthalates or absorption of phthalates will make our bodies hold more fat. You know, it's really disturbing. It can be disturbing if you really sit down and think about it, just how much plastic we have involved in our lives. And I know on your website, you have this um, refuse. Can you share a little bit about that? Sure. So we took the model that is taught to kids of the three R's, reduce, reuse, recycle. And we encourage people to add a fourth R, but onto the front. And that fourth R is refuse. And the, the idea is whenever possible, refuse plastic, 
refuse single-use plastic. Look around, see if you have a choice. And if you're a person who travels or a student and you're out a lot, you know, maybe invest in a reusable cup or bottle that you can use rather than taking single-use plastic or paper lined with plastic cups to go or containers. Thank you so much for sharing that. I'm going to switch gears a little bit, Diana. So crux of our conversation is the why behind what you do. What what drove you to this? You know, you mentioned your your surfing and being in the ocean, but what really drove you and pushed you in this direction and what keeps you going? Well, it's interesting. I think it's a whole combination of things that drove me to the work that I do. Um, one was learning about the material by making artwork out of it. Um, another was became how do I use my artwork and even text and images found on the materials and the bags and recombine them together to help me um, communicate to people uh, ideas around this and talk about um, revaluing materials. So it's interesting because, uh, you know, I've listened to the folks from the American Chemistry Council talk about how important plastic is. And I've said to a couple of them before, listen, we, I agree with you. Plastic is an important, valuable material. But if it is truly that, then why are we designing with it, you know, with intended obsolescence? Why are we designing single-use things that are meant to be instantly tossed or thrown away? Plastic is not disposable. Plastic is a material. A plastic water bottle will potentially last longer than a human lifespan. And so uh, that is not a single-use material. And when we design with intended obsolescence, I find it to be a highly irresponsible use of a valuable material. And I will believe that these companies and corporations actually get it and care about it when we start mining all of our landfills in the United States and around the world, which I don't see happening other than like informal in the informal waste picker system. You know, um, and and that opens up a whole other thing, which is, you know, for example, in Mumbai, I had a chance to spend a day in Darvi. Um, and Darvi is a very, very, I think it's one of the largest, um, I don't know what the right word is to describe it, like informal cities in the middle of Mumbai that's evolved and it, I think many of the people who live there are not don't even have papers or license, you know, um, uh, citizen licenses. I don't know that they have the right to vote or anything. So it's kind of this informal world with a million people living in the middle of the city, and every and this informal waste management recycling sector is is a very kind of vibrant part of Darby, but but it's concerning because. There are not health precautions for people. Um, and, you know, it's, it's, I, I feel that it's a, it's, it's a complicated world. I, I, I feel that I should talk about, um, you'd asked me before about externalities. And I think one of the things I've really come to understand just in the last few years, because our organization turned 10 last year, but just in the last three years or so, um, as we, we helped create the Break Free from Plastic movement as well, 
Uh, but that has opened my eyes so much to really see the connection between plastic and climate change and the fact that plastic is primarily made from byproducts of processing oil and from fracking and ethylene cracking. Um, and that is an industry. So that our use of plastic and specifically for single use, but all of the plastic that we use pollutes us, pollutes people, pollutes, pollutes animals, our waterways, our air, our, our land and the planet from extraction through manufacturing and production. Then our use of it is polluting if chemicals leach into our food and beverages and beauty products. And then it's instantly a waste management issue. And a lot of that gets burnt. And we give it different names. We say, oh, it's wonderful. It's waste to fuel, waste to energy, you know, pyrolysis. Like there are all these fancy names, but they're basically all different forms of incineration. And when we incinerate plastic or burn it or burn it in open pits, we create particulate pollution and we release dioxins. And when you look at the whole sphere of that chain that I've described from extraction, manufacturing, production, use, and waste management, burn, incineration, it disproportionately impacts fence line and frontline communities, which means it disproportionately impacts people of color and indigenous communities. And it, it's, you know, it's, it's a social justice issue. It's an environmental justice issue. And it's certainly not fair in any sense. So even the idea that you use something and then, or these materials and they go away, there is no way. Thank you so much for that. And you mentioned something in there regarding landfills, and I heard you on another show mentioning some statistics regarding landfills. Can you share that with the audience? Yeah. So basically what, what I was talking about, um, if you heard on another program, was that, um, so in 2018, so, okay, here's the thing. In the United States, we have worked with a number that came from the government and different agencies that we recycle 9% of our plastic. I just want to let that sink in for a second. Wow, we recycle 9% of our plastic. You know, we, that means we don't recycle what? 91%. 91% of our plastic. Okay, so we recycle 9%. So that's what the numbers were. Then China said, you know what? We're not taking your plastic back in these cargo containers anymore. Stop sending it back to us. And that happened in 2018. And when they said that, our recycling rates, we, we work with a chemical engineer who did a projection. And uh, her name is Jan Dell. And that production, pro projection was that by the end, based on the China sword, which is what it was called, by the end of 2018, our recycling rates in the United States for plastic would drop from the highly unimpressive 9% down to 4.4%. And that if it continued, that by the end of 2019, last year, she projected that it would drop to 2.6%. Basically, what we've seen happening right now, as well as a response to COVID, is that 
almost nothing is getting recycled. Everything is getting landfilled. Or it's going to waste to energy or in, basically incineration. So, so why, does my city, why does my city give me two bins? Am I just praying? Um, your city is giving you two bins because uh, it's aspirational right now. Um, <laughs> but I mean, you know, I live in Los Angeles and I have three bins. I have a black bin, which is for garbage, which I, I and the bins have gotten bigger and bigger just in my lifetime. And I never fill a bin up. I mean, I could use a bin that's probably one sixth or one one eighth the size of what I'm given. Um, they give you a green bin, which is for supposed to be for compostables and garden cuttings and things like that, plants. Um, and then there's a blue bin, which is supposed to be for recyclables. But, you know, when you look just even across the United States, it's not a, um, the system is not consistent and there's not a consistent labeling system for it. And it really depends on the city or town that you live in and the municipality and what they have available um, in order to process things. But, but at this point in time, I mean, unfortunately, virgin plastic is so inexpensive and you, even when you do use recycled content, I believe my understanding was that you can only use up to 30% recycled material. So the other 70% would need to be virgin in order for the polymer chain to be strong enough. Um, so, you know, we have a real challenge here. I mean, one of the things I think is important to give some thought to is this chasing arrow recycling symbol. Uh, is doesn't actually mean anything. It's got these different numbers, but number seven is is other. And uh, just because it has that symbol on it doesn't mean that the material gets recycled. It's amazing how quickly we can be brainwashed, isn't it? Well, I mean, a lot of money and energy and marketing went into brainwashing us. It's a concerted effort by industry. I've learned so much during this conversation. It stoked my curiosity. What are some of the most important learnings that you've had or aha surprise moments? Well, you know, it's been a really sharp learning curve for me. I had the opportunity um, a, a few years ago to go on a toxic tour. And if anyone's interested in that, I highly recommend that you, when, when the world becomes more open again, that you sign up for one. If you can find one near to where you live and, and, and go and learn about what is actually happening around you. I had the opportunity to go on a toxic tour through a group called Tejas. It's T-E-J-A-S. They're based in Houston, Texas. And uh, I had the opportunity to go on a toxic tour of the Gulf Coast, where I think it's about 66 miles long of petroleum refineries, chemical refineries. Um, and was just very eye-opening, eye-opening to see that these big petrochemical companies give money to and, and build and sponsor community centers and beautiful parks and baseball diamonds and playgrounds right across the street from their refineries. And that people live in these communities a block away from the refinery and, and the, that these communities have extremely high levels of asthma and uh, skin irritations and 
all different kinds of health issues and, and probably shortened lifespans, you know, by living right there. And they're, they're not able to move away. And, um, these companies also provide a lot of jobs for people locally. So it's a, it's a, I don't know what the right expression is. It's a double-edged sword. It's like people depend on it for livelihood and yet it's poisoning them. I thought that that film Dark Waters was really well done. I don't know if you've had a chance to see that with Mark Ruffalo and Tim Robbins. I have not yet. It's on my list. Absolutely. You know, I really appreciate you sharing that. You mentioned a word earlier that I'm not familiar with, a fence line community. Can you share what that is? Yeah. So fence line and frontline communities are community. What I was just describing would be a fence line community. That's a community that is literally right across the fence. They live right on the other side of the fence or right across the road from ExxonMobil refinery or from a plastic production facility or from a chemical facility or a uh, manufacturing facility or a waste management facility or incineration facility. I appreciate you sharing that. You know, I want to ask you, if you could share some advice or words of wisdom for the, with the audience, what would it be? And specifically around plastic or, you know, just in general, I've really enjoyed your perspective and your outlook and the little research I did, a, you know, on you prior to the show. I've just enjoyed hearing some of what you had to say. I really like the idea of your internal rudder. So words of wisdom or advice to the audience. Well, I mean, people ask me if I feel hopeful about this and I feel very hopeful. I wake up every day knowing that it is possible for us to change this and that this issue of the way that the world uses plastic and the problems it's caused is relatively new. It's really just a problem of the last hundred years and more specifically uh, uh, an issue that exploded in terms of the material that was used at the end of World War II. So I have a lot of hope that although we've done a great amount of damage, that it is possible to shift, to turn the rudder and turn the ship away from the way that we're using things. So I am extremely hopeful and excited about refill models, reuse models, supporting infrastructure around that, companies that are developing systems in that way, everything from the company Vessel that is doing a reusable steel coffee cup to Luke um, from Tom and uh, TerraCycle, uh, which is, again, a model with a reusable container. Um, many of them are steel or other materials, but reuse, the idea of reusables and refillables, I, myself, those are the businesses that I want to support. I'm also really interested in um, new or existing non-toxic materials. Uh, we just released this new healthy pregnancy guide this week that we've been working on for the last year with uh, one of our coalition members. It's an organization called Made Safe, Made Safe Certified, and they do certifications for companies that their products, um, everything from food products to beauty products to cleaning, household cleaning products, et cetera, that they're non-toxic. Um, and it's a healthy pregnancy guide, but it's really a plastic-free pregnancy guide and a toxin-free pregnancy guide. And it's available for free through our website. So I, I, 
I feel very hopeful that as we continue to help people educate them um, and connect people and companies together that are doing the right thing, and if we can reach out and help support those companies that are doing right, the right thing, um, that this is the wild, wild west right now for business and investment. And I think it's a very, very exciting time to create change. And I wonder, too, if everything that's been happening from COVID to uh, social justice will also allow us to see that the places I was describing to you earlier, uh, where fence line and frontline communities um, are based, and the impact of plastic and our use of plastic and plastic manufacturing and plastic production on them, that this the, we cannot continue to have sacrifice zones and we must stop thinking about people and some people as disposable. Nothing's disposable. The planet's been here much longer than us. Something has evolved to use every single little bit of everything. When we die, our bodies will go back to the earth and there are, you know, bacteria and mushrooms and all these different, you know, mycelium and all of these things that will utilize what we are made out of. And we are made out of the same uh, building blocks as plants and the planet. And everything's connected. The way that we deliver water, the way that we, the way that we protect our water, the way that we are addressing like, and looking at extractive industries, I think we need to really shift all of this and realize that everything is intertwined and everything's interconnected. And if we can look at this in a more holistic way, then something as simple as ordering a drink and saying no straw in my drink, or, you know, if you're able to, if it's, if you live in a community or you're, you go to a market where you could ask for something in glass or if you find a market where you can buy things in bulk and bring your own containers or bags with you and refill things or use glass jars, very simple, tiny little things can have a big ripple effect. So even remembering to bring your own bag or basket uh, every time you do go out or go to the market is important. And I feel that as we, this is obviously a very unusual year and it's amazing that it's 2020 in our calendar because it's the year to really open our eyes and to look backwards and to look forwards and uh, move things in in the right direction and we have to do it this is this is the year to do it Deanna thank you so much for the advice and words of wisdom I've so enjoyed speaking with you is there anything I should have asked you that I didn't or anything else you'd like to share before we go well, I didn't really describe the coalition to you. Should I just talk Absolutely. About that? Please please do. So yeah, so we founded Plastic Pollution Coalition in 2009 and have slowly grown. We had some original founding member groups, and I would say by the end of 2010, we were about 25 groups and that included a few businesses as well. I remember Natura Cares, which is a natural women, uh, women's um, menstrual materials company, they had joined us right in the beginning. Um, and then as the years progressed, we grew slowly. 
But in the last three years, we've grown exponentially. And now about half of our coalition members are businesses. And we're at, we have about just over 1,200 um, organizations and businesses. So that has been really interesting to see how many businesses have become interested in addressing plastic pollution, in figuring out how to reduce their plastic footprint, and um, coming up with ideas and solutions, products, infrastructure, um, infrastructure systems, et cetera, that will allow us to continue to create this change and to move towards a world free of plastic pollution. So that is the coalition. And then we work through educating people, connecting them, and advocating. So uh, we've created a number of guides and tools and toolkits, and we have a um, global plastic reduction legislative toolkit that folks can sign up and use if they're interested in bringing policy to their town or state or country. Um, and that is available on our site. And then we also um, have been involved in helping create uh, comic books with Archie's comics, Archie and Friends, um, an animated comic with Chintin, the group that represents informal waste pickers, and they're based in India. Um, we have a little booklet we made for kids called Is Plastic Fantastic? And uh, that's just been translated by some friends in Indonesia into Bahasa. And um, really doing our best to share short format video pieces that are good, that have good content in them and help educate people and activate them that are either made by coalition members or that we've produced ourselves. Um, and then very, very proud of, to be involved with and to have helped support a film called The Story of Plastic, which is available right now. It's being distributed by Discovery Channel, and it can be watched on Discovery Go. Or you can also set up screenings of it or virtual screenings of it through The Story of Plastic and The Story of Stuff. That film, I think, gives a very good overview to help one understand the impact of our use of plastic, single-use plastic, and plastic pollution around the world, uh, and told through activists and people on the ground working on this issue in different parts of the world, uh, and, but also with solutions and interesting solutions around zero-waste cities and zero-waste city models. Uh, I think composting is really interesting with regards to this as well, but you know, I would just encourage everybody to just to think reusable and not disposable. And sorry, I've gone back to advice, but that would be. <laughs> no, that's that, that's perfect. And you know, my most so, simple, my most simple piece of advice that I could offer. I like that. Simple is always good. And I will put links to the movie and your website in the show notes. You know, I want to congratulate you quickly on your 10 years and congratulate you on your most recent you know, exponential growth of the last few years. I look forward to seeing you grow again exponentially in the next 10 years and look forward to catching up with you again soon. That sounds great. Thank you so much for having me, Raj. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you for listening. And if you like our show, please give us a rating and review on iTunes. And if you want to show your support, please share our show with a friend 
or reach out to us on social media where you'll find us under our Nexus PMG handle. Bigger Than Us is a Nexus PMG production.